Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Chris McMahon from the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Bath talks about representations in engineering design from cathedrals to cars and planes. Okay, could we make a start, please? Uh, Thank you all for coming this evening. Um, For those of you that don't know me, I'm George Lunt, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor, and uh, I bring uh, apologies from the Vice-Chancellor, who can't be with us this evening, and I also bring her very best wishes to you, Professor McMahon, for your uh, inaugural lecture. One housekeeping item that I've been asked to remind you, can you please turn mobile phones off? Not just turn the ringer off, but turn the phone off, because otherwise they do seem to interfere with the uh, microphone radio link system. Okay, so it's, uh, it's my great pleasure to be able to uh, introduce to you uh, Professor Chris McMahon from our Mechanical Engineering Department. And uh, I think there are many in the audience who uh, know only too well that this university, uh, which was founded 41 years ago, uh, really the... Uh, the heart of the university at that time. It was a university of science and engineering and technology. And uh, mechanical engineering has always been a major part of our activities uh, here in Bath. The department is not only one of the absolutely key departments in our own university, it's one of the absolutely top departments in uh, the UK. And we're very proud of uh, our mechanical engineering department and our mechanical engineering colleagues. Chris McMahon uh, has been with us uh, for some time, since uh, 2002. He's had an enormous impact on the department and the university since that time. Chris... Uh, started life, as it were, as an engineer way back with a first-class honours degree from uh, the University of Bristol. Um, And after that, he spent uh, some time actually working as a hands-on engineer, initially with what were then British Railways for several years, then moving into uh, what, again, many in this department Uh, now is one of the top engineering companies in the UK, namely Ricardo, a company with which our department here still has very strong uh, collaborative links. Uh, And then in 1984, uh, Professor McMahon took a major uh, step in his career progression and became a lecturer at uh, the University of Bristol in engineering. And he... uh, rapidly moved on in Bristol up through the ranks of senior lecturer uh, and then to reader. And we were delighted, as I say, in 2002, we persuaded him to come to Bath, where he is uh, is now firmly established uh, as a professor in our mechanical engineering department. Um, Within mechanical engineering at Bath, there are a number of of, of, uh, subgroups, automotive being a major one, aeronautical, uh, other aspects. But one thing 
that really, uh, again, is one of the sort of jewels in the engineering crown is the focus on uh, design. And uh, Chris's uh, full title is a professor in engineering design in the department of uh, MechEng. He's also the director of our Innovative Design and Manufacturing Research Centre, the IMRC, one of uh, relatively few such major research centres in the UK. He's also director of a National Grand Challenge project. This is something funded by the uh, EPSRC, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, uh, which is concerned with looking at knowledge and information management for uh, long-life product service engineering work. This is not a programme that involves simply our own university. It's a partnership with 11 different university groups and over 20 industrial partners. And that, again, I think, is a reflection of one of the great strengths of uh, our university, the very close interface that we have always had and we continue to build on between excellent academic research and industry, the applications of that excellent academic research to the needs and activities of uh, the relevant industry. And that is certainly an area uh, where uh, Chris McMahon has made and continues to make a, a very important uh, contribution. His Research interests, and indeed his teaching interests at the moment, are very much in the application of computers and computing methods to engineering design, uh, and in particular in the ways in which engineers can be assisted in the organisation and management of design information. He's on the board of management of the Design Society, He's published uh, very widely on information and knowledge management in engineering design and in the automation of the design process. He has uh, an international reputation. There are many international collaborations, uh, particularly in, in, in France. Um, and in addition to all of that research uh, output, he is uh, co-authoring co uh, a major textbook on computer-aided design and manufacture. So, as I said before, we were extremely pleased to uh, persuade Chris McMahon to come to Bath, and I now invite him to present his inaugural lecture. The title's right up there, and as you can see, an enormously wide-ranging topic <laughs> from cathedrals to cars and planes, <coughs> representation in engineering design. Professor McMahon. Thank you, Dick. Uh, thank you, Deputy Vice-Chancellor, and uh, good evening and welcome, everyone. It's very pleased to, I'm very pleased to see you all. Um, and as you've heard, a very wide-ranging topic, and I thought I would start today with a picture of a ploughed field. And what, ostensibly, has that got to do with engineering design? And although it appears to be the natural world, that is as much an artefact as the engineering artefacts that we will of later. It's a creation of human hand and ingenuity, the farm, the, uh, the planning of the, and the execution of the ploughing. 
And that was recognized, that fact was recognized by um, Herb Simon about 40 years ago when he presented his lectures on the sciences of the artificial at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1968. He wrote, everyone designs who devises courses of action aimed at changing existing situations into preferred ones. The intellectual activity that produces material artifacts is no different fundamentally from the one that prescribes remedies for a sick patient or the one that devises a new sales plan for a company, social welfare policy for a state, or the design of a ploughed field and the farm around it. So my interest is in the artificial world in general and how we approach the, the specification and creation of that artificial world. And that is the topic of design. One of the great early researchers in design wrote, design research is a systematic inquiry whose goal is the knowledge of or in the embodiment of configuration, composition, structure, purpose, value and meaning in man-made things and systems. And that is, uh, we've heard the Innovative Design and Manufacturing Research Centre, our focus on the design side is in those aspects, man-made things and systems. And we'll learn more about the detail later. Of course, we're not concerned with ploughed fields or with farms. We're concerned as engineers with constructed and manufactured artefacts. And we see, see around us the work of the, uh, the great engineers, in particular Brunel in this region, uh, the Box Tunnel, the SS Great Britain, Clifton Suspension Bridge. And of course, I'm in the Department of Mechanical Engineering, so we're interested in, in artefacts which embody movement, which involve the flow of material, uh, flow of energy, um, in typically uh, classic mechanical engineering artefacts, cars, tractors, engines, but also such things as steel rolling mills, packaging machines, machine tools. And in fact, these latter two are significant subjects of interest in the IDMRC. My life has been very specifically concerned in engineering with transportation. Uh, I started working life in 1973 before I went to university in Derby Litchurch Lane Works. We were known then as the railway children, the young engineers. Um, and uh, I worked uh, at that time in a work plant that was just beginning to manufacture the uh, Mark, BR Mark III coaches, um, which shows I'm not as old as I look, as we're still using them today, uh, travelling between here and London, but also what a good design that was. And that was a fantastic start as an engineer to work in locomotive and carriage manufacture. My working life since has been, since I've come uh, to academia, my connection with the physical artefact has been vicarious, I'm afraid. It's been through the industrial contacts we have. And in particular, my working life has been concerned with, uh, with the aircraft industry. We do a lot of work with Airbus that produces this magnificent uh, aircraft uh, shown here, and uh, also with the automotive industry and uh, a number of the the uh, more spectacular-looking images today come from an association we have with BMW. So, as I say, the focus of the talk today is of engineering design, and there's a whole range of topics uh, of interest in engineering design research, sort of questions that are asked. How should we organise ourselves to best carry out design? What process should we follow, particularly over the last 20 or 30 years? Enormous effort... How, how do we devise, identify the best design process to follow? What activities should we undertake? In what sequence? How can we make decisions in that process? 
how do we maximize the performance of the designed artifact? My, my colleagues uh, in the department, there's significant uh, work going on in maximizing, improving the performance of uh, machines and systems. How do we identify our design requirements? What skills, resources do we need in design? All very important questions in design research. But the one which I've concentrated on for 15 years or so now, uh, amongst other areas, but, but this has been the main focus, along with, um, in particular, Steve Cully and John Sims-Williams at, at Bristol, was how is information, both about the artefact and that used in its definition, used in the design process? And how should we, should we represent and organise that information? And that's the focus of my talk today. More specifically, when we talk about information, information about the artefact itself. What's the requirements that the device is designed to address? What functions should it have? How does it actually behave? What shape, what form, what structure should the artefact have? What attributes should it have? Every dimension, every surface finish, every tolerance has to be specified. How does the artefact actually perform when it's in the when it's in a working environment. And at the design stage, we, we are working in the abstract. The artifact does not yes, exist. We have to be able to predict how the, art, the artifact will perform. And of course, that is the key link to engineering sciences. But information is also about the environment in which the artifact operates, the capabilities and materials and processes, the loads that the environment imposes. You imagine uh, the difficulty if you're an automotive manufacturer, of predicting how the 99th percentile worst driver driving on the 99th percentile worst roads with the 99th percentile worst vehicle will, will perform. And that, those are the sort of issues that have to be supported by information. And, of course, information about all the tools and techniques used in engineering. And our work, our research has been developed to assist in all of these aspects. And I'm going to talk first of all about the representation of the artefact, but then about organisation of the information relating to that process. Now, of course, we, we can design without information systems. A, a former colleague of mine told me about visiting the, the Gulf and talking to uh, people building dows, and they were quite substantial ships. He said they were about 20 metres long, built entirely from memory, no formal records at all. And the, the builders, the craftsmen, uh, were, were able to work without drawings, without models. And, of course, that, that was the tradition uh, um, up until the Middle Ages, that obviously there were representations, but largely unsupported by representation. But in the Middle Ages, with the great ecclesiastical buildings, the great um, military buildings the necessity grew for representations to allow the masons to deal with complexity, complexity of the shapes that they were dealing with, but also complexity of the artefact, the number of people involved, the uh, number of elements and so on. And um, there's a very nice example of that in Wells Cathedral. I had the pleasure of visiting with the SCR a few weeks ago. And in Wells Cathedral is one of two plaster floors um, and the a plaster floor above the north transept is a room, quite a large room, it was used as a schoolroom in the early part of the last century. And the masons there would put a thin layer of skim soft plaster on the floor and then scribe out on that floor the shapes that they would make, transfer it to patterns which they would then uh, transfer onto the stonework. And this is a, 
the same, this is the plaster floor at York, and this is the sort of patterns that the masons scribed out on that. Um, of course, once they filled the floor with, uh, with their work, they would just put another skim layer of plaster down, start again, and then another after that, and uh, gradually build up. I think there's about two inches of plaster on that floor in wells. Uh, built up over, over the years. So that's early uh, representation. And, uh, and if we look by the 16th century, Palladio uh, was using uh, multi-view drawings for his buildings in a way that we would recognize today. Our first-year students, I hope, if they studied properly, would be able to interpret that drawing. But it was there's a, a book by David McGee, from craft, a paper from Craftsmanship to Draftsmanship, um, building on work by John Christopher Jones, J. Christopher Jones, that says that the, really the, the formalization of measured plans um, and the systematic use of measured plans emerged in uh, military, in, in warship construction in the 16th through to the 18th century. And essentially his argument is that warships were the most difficult things of the day. One ship would cost... Uh, quite a lot more than any industry at that time. And uh, uh, running a navy, funding a navy, was a major, major uh, uh, cost for, for a country. And as I say, the complexity of a, of a, of a warship, very significant. And the, the representation through multi-view uh, engineering drawings, as we know it today, uh, became very widely used at that time. And we would recognize... Um, again, the, all of those drawings and be able to interpret them. But there's no dimensions on them. There's still a great deal of interpretation by the craftsmen uh, of those drawings. Gaspard Monge, a great French engineer and educator in, in the early part of the 19th century, wrote a book, Geometry Descriptive, Descriptive Geometry, which formalized uh, that. We still call it today Mangean projection, reflecting that. And by 1826, well into the Industrial Revolution, that uh, first angle projection drawing would be entirely interpretable by any engineer today. All we've lost is the artistic uh, uh, impression. That's been, uh, it's been taken away in order to make drawings faster to produce and cheaper to produce. So the, the first origin of representation was in the shape complexity and allowing people to work together. And of course, once you had drawings, you could bring in a whole load of other things. There were a whole load of other affordances came from them. You could analyze the emerging design. You could calculate the center of buoyancy of the ship and the center of mass. Um, and um, it allowed the distribution uh, of, of labor. Now, in, in the 19th century, um, the distribution of labor became even more important with Designs were still largely interpreted by craftsmen, but standardization emerged, particularly in the armaments manufactured during the early part of the century. With the standardization came the need to define standard parts, to define every part in detail, detailed drawings. But again, once we had detailed drawings, there were other affordances. Suddenly there was, need, there was less need for skill in the uh, manufacturing process because uh, the uh, the work could be planned in, in process planning and it extent, allowed the extension of management control over the design and manufacturing process. So again, there was a step for one reason which gave affordances in another. And some examples, this is the earliest detailed drawing I can find from the American National Armour in Harpers Ferry. 
site of John Brown's attack, John Brown's body mouldering in the grave. Um, and uh, this is a, a detailed drawing of 1892 from American uh, locomotive industry. And again, you can see uh, there that that would be entirely recognisable and in interpretable today. Now I'm going to leap on right on to the 1960s. Obviously there were significant developments in the, uh, in the 20th century, particularly in dimensioning, tolerancing, geometric uh, tolerancing and so on. But in the 1960s was the emergence of computer-aided design. And that was my, uh, my work in Ricardo Consulting Engineers in 1981, was to start using computer-aided design in that company. And then it was shape complexity, the complexity of the automotive body, the, um, the complexity of the ship, uh, the aircraft uh, body, the uh, complexity of microelectronic systems led to widespread use of computer representation. Surface representation developed in the 60s and 70s allowed complex surfaces to be defined and viewed with stunning realism. My electrical engineering colleagues tell me that from the early mid-1980s, it became impossible to design uh, microelectronic circuits without computer assistance. Simply the, the work involved in, in the drafting by hand was too great. And um, cars like the Renault Laguna, the uh, aircrafts on the Boeing 777, uh, they were designed completely using three-dimensional modeling systems to minimize error and rework, reduce the difficulties in manufacturing and assembly. Some pictures from that era. Pierre Bézier, who was one of the great engineers, worked for Renault, uh, led to Bézier curves and surfaces used today. And this is how a car bodies were always, always uh, made by sculpting a uh, clay model. But in, before computers, very often the two halves of the clay model would be quite different in size, two or three millimetres in difference in uh, sizes of windows, for example, on one side of I've heard one side of a vehicle compared with, the, with another. With computer-aided design, clay model would still be used, but surfaces would be fitted to the, to the shape. And only one half would be designed, the other would be copy-milled. Uh, and, of course, once the geometric representation is there, then uh, manufacturing instructions can be built on that. And, of course, we can get stunningly uh, visually realistic images. And this is um, an example from the Boeing 777 of the sort of complexity. And this is going back 10, 15 years now uh, into the, um, the time that that aircraft was being constructed. And, of course, microelectronic circuits, um, uh, as I say, can you, you can imagine trying to draw a mask for that by hand. It's uh, simply not straightforward to do. But I understand there are still uh, some problems in computer-aided design representation. In particular, the latest stealth fighter is proving impossible to represent. <laughs> so let's leap forward once more to the, to the present day and say what, what are the equivalents to the shape complexity, the complexity of the number of parts and so on that we're dealing with today. In the 1950s, my father worked on this uh, aircraft, the Bristol Britannia. And that, that was very much a West Country creation. The airframe was made in Bristol, the engines in Bristol, the hydraulics and the propellers up in Gloucester with Doughty and so on. Filton today, the, uh, the same site that made the Britannia is now involved in the design of the wings of the uh, Airbus. 
family of aircraft. The manufacture of those wings is done in North Wales, the assembly in uh, in the aircraft in France or Germany, pulling in parts from all over the world. Now, you might say that Airbus is a pan-European company. You would expect it to be highly distributed, but the arch-rival Boeing, the 767, 60% of the aircraft was built by Boeing. It was made by Boeing. 777, about 40%. 787, the vertical fin. And the rest, China, Korea, Japan, elsewhere in the United States, Canada, United Kingdom, um, Sweden, Italy, and so on. A completely global industry, completely distributed. There's a second issue in the last few years, and that is... um, Computers with everything. This is the design office that I worked in in 1981. Uh, Any of you recognize me there? I had a lot more hair all over my head at that time. There we are. (laughs) Wasn't he a handsome young man? uh, But but the point is that it was was a completely uh, manual operation design then. Uh, We might type things up, but that's all. We were beginning to use computers... But our design calculations were done by hand, uh, drawn out by hand, all the calculations by hand, with, hand, with pocket calculators. These days, of course, uh, computer support. And in fact, this is an aside, really, but I thought I would pick out some of the computer systems that I've used over my life. We worked in those days, when we first started using CAD, with a thing called the Tektronix 4014. And it was a very, very low-intensity screen. It was a vector... Uh, to refresh uh, screen and we worked in a darkened room we called it the black hole the black hole of Shoreham uh, and uh, on the day before my son who's now 24 was born uh, we installed this computer he was due about three weeks before and so we picked the date of installation because he was bound to arrive by then but no he, um, he arrived the day, the day after this first data general MV10,000 in Europe it had a four megabytes of main memory and 300 megabytes of disk in two disk drives. And we stored on half-inch mag tapes and eventually we started using Apollo computers with eight-inch floppy disks. It's another story, but one of the big issues is how do we maintain our computer systems over that time? While I was looking at this, I found a picture of Microsoft in 1978. And uh, I would have had pitted in that group Perfectly, un- yeah. same hairstyle, same beard, and everything. I also found the Microsoft Vista beta test team at work today. <laughs> anyway, the um, the third of the issues that we have uh, today is, and um, Professor Lund alluded to it in the introduction, is the move to product service systems. Whereas 50, 60 years ago. Uh, Let's say in the 1920s, 80 years ago, the Baldwin locomotive company would supply a locomotive to the Pennsylvania Railroad. It would design the locomotive to the Pennsylvania Railroad instruction, provide it, and then have nothing more to do with it. The railroad company would maintain it, make the spares, and so on. By the 50s, the railroad would buy a, a, a locomotive from General Motors and the spares from General Motors. Today, it's likely that the same company that builds the locomotive might well maintain it through life. And we see that in all sorts of areas. The military is moving to procurement that the next generation of flight refuelers, um, the RAF, will fuel and pilot, but otherwise they will be 
uh, owned and managed, maintained, upgraded by the companies that built them. And the same private finance initiative in building, but we see it also in power generation in railway procurement, uh, medical care, power by the hour in civil gas turbines and so on. And that's the focus of this big grand challenge project, knowledge and information management through life. So we have three key issues in the current context, I suggest. The first is the gl completely globally distributed working in modern uh, engineering. Many actors in the process, enormous volumes of information available to them, but having to share description. The second is this move towards product service systems and the transient nature of IT systems combined with the long lifetime of their products imposes particular problems. I'm not going to talk in detail about that, but it's, it's a big focus. And we also need to have much better understanding as we get better and better artifacts, we need to have much better understanding of the uncertainty in our information. Again, not a, a focus today, but a big focus for our research centre. And the third point is computers with everything. And what I do want to say, the, that in this distributed process, viewpoint is very important. How do we bring the viewpoint of the thousands of engineers involved to bear? How do we allow them to share their viewpoints? A manufacturing engineer will have a viewpoint on the design, a stress analyst another viewpoint. So the particular questions I'm going to talk about for the remainder of the talk, how do we capture the viewpoint of specialist engineers as it emerges during the design process? and in manufacturing service? And how can we organize information to reflect the viewpoint of different actors in the process? First, a little bit about current practice in computer-aided design. These uh, models uh, from uh, my colleague at BMW are examples of the sort of creations of modern computer-aided design techniques. They use solid geometry. The full three-dimensional solid model is described. But also they use things called parametric and associative models in feature-based design. What do I mean by that? It's a, a simple shape, a link. In parametric computer-aided design, the history of the way that link is constructed is stored, and key parameters relating to the link are also identified then as those parameters are varied, so the geometry varies to reflect that. In associative computer-aided design, where a model like a finite element model or manufacturing instruction is generated from the underlying design, then again, as the design changes because of the variation in parameters, so the derived model can be updated to suit. Now, just going back, that is a collection of faces, edges, and vertices in a boundary representation model. But you can see that that's a through hole. And if you know, the engineers will say, well, that's an eye, that's another eye, that's a shank connecting the two. We, we recognize the shapes, and we, we know that that's likely to be machined, and that's likely to be drilled, and the whole thing could be cast and forged, and so on. The computer system doesn't know any of that. It just knows it as a collection of lines and arcs. But for 20-odd years now, particularly coming out of manufacturing, the idea that we can model not in terms of points, lines, and arcs, surfaces, but instead in terms of features has been current. And there is a, a depression feature, a pocket, a protrusion feature, another depression feature, a through-hole feature. And um, fe features have been used very widely uh, 
This is from uh, colleague Jonathan Corney at Harriet Watts. His team wrote a feature finder program that would go over part geometry, a CAD model, and pick out features relating to pockets, holes, and so on. Now, um, John Woodock, who used to work here many years ago, said, but you can have a program work half an hour and come and say there's a hole there. And the engineer who created the model knew there was a hole there. He or she put it there in the first place. So much better to design from the start in terms of features, but that's been a big problem. Um, I'll come to that in a moment. But first, here is an example of the sort of geometry which is very amenable to a parametric associated in feature-based geometry. Lots of repetition. So the features and the parametric and associative models help with the repetition. I know the engine people look at this and say, that's no, nothing like a real engine. It's, it's made up. I couldn't use a real engine. But um, it's, it, it's typical of the sort of geometry which an engine might have. The problems with CAD today are that parametric and associative models are enormously difficult to manage if they're of any complexity. And, but they also allow only modification of topologically invariant part, one, one sort of geometry. The process of sorry, building and manipulating the model is built into the model. A lot of our computer systems these days have the problem that we do not properly separate the data from the system with the means of processing. Spreadsheets are a classic example of that. And CAD is the same. We don't properly separate the processing of the model from the model itself. But third, if we build a model with features, which specialist viewpoint should we use? A classic example in this case is that of the aircraft wing. Aircraft uh, structural part of the wing is spars running uh, span-wise, ribs running cord-wise, and then those ribs connect to the skin through stringers, um, which... Uh, hold the skin onto the ribs. And the rib is a classic example of a modern machine from solid part, machined all over. And there's a, there's a rib, we can see the machining parts in these pockets. But if you were designing that with features, which features would you choose? Would you take a big solid block and remove the pockets? The manufacturing engineer's viewpoint would be that, that way. Or would you take the stress analyst viewpoint and model it as a series of ribs carrying loads? And features have, have uh, fallen on that viewpoint dependency problem for about the last 10 years or more. They're used in modern CAD, but mainly for quick construction, not really for the real benefit you can get from it. Now, we suggest that, that the solution to that is to use techniques from things like the semantic web, which... Um, which allow us to share viewpoint of models. To each specialist might annotate a model from his or her own point of view. And then we can have as many sets of annotations we like, as many specialist points of view embedded in the model as we like. So we can take, again, the, this simple link model. We can annotate it saying semantically what it is. It's an eye, shank or span. There's a drilled hole. There's a machine surface. And then we can apply processes which are based on the fact that the semantics of the part is known. So we can apply a standard process for going from a, a machined to a non-machined part, remove the holes, offset the machine surfaces, uh, put a fillet around the edge if it's a casting or a forging, apply a draft angle and so on. Or we can 
have something like a, a crankshaft. And we can do this at present with associative. We can take the crankshaft and produce a finite element model from it associatively. But we can only do it for one design of the crankshaft. If we annotate the crank with what the meaning of the different parts are and then have a process which, set, which works on the basis of the semantics of these annotated parts, we can apply that to any crank design that we wish in principle. We also propose a second thing, and annotation is very important these days. The, the World Wide Web is based on annotated files. But the World Wide Web has gone a particular route with annotation in that the annotation, the markup, is embedded in the text. So those of you who have looked at HTML will know that there, there is a header text has been marked up with tags which say that it's header level one and the same header level two and so on. There's an alternative to embedding the annotation, standoff annotation, where the annotation is separated from the underlying model. And in that case, this is saying that characters 1 to 12 in this file are, are header level 1. Characters 13 to 28 are header level 2. The point about that is that you can have as many of these sets of annotations as you want, all referring to the same file. So you don't have to change the underlying data. And everyone can bring their viewpoint on the annotation. And we've started doing that with CAD models, standoff annotation of CAD models. And we started doing it in particular for lightweight representation. Modern CAD systems are very complex, expensive, difficult to use. Lightweight representations are product formats missing some of the richness of the full CAD model. And there's a whole load of them emerging just now. All different types, each for different applications. And they have these sort of benefits, smaller sizes, they're independent of platform, open source, so they're easily shared and developed. They can help protect sensitive information. Now, our uh, system that we're developing works with lightweight models with multiple annotations. And the idea is that throughout the life of a product, different engineers can associate information with these different models. There might be the original CAD model used at design stage, but manufacturing engineers might have a model which doesn't have the history of the, the, the way the design was created. It saves giving that history information away. They might, but they need the full geometry uh, with all of the boundary representation information. Assembly engineers don't need the surface geometry. They just need the shapes of the, the parts for assembly purposes. Maintenance engineers might need different interactive models uh, which can be embedded into maintenance documentation and so on. But you can imagine that a manufacturing engineer would mark up what the surface condition actually achieved on a part was. A maintenance engineer might mark up what the surface condition of that same surface was after being in use for 10,000 hours or whatever. And you could carry out correlation of the two. So we're looking at viewpoints uh, of engineering artifacts in that way. We're also looking at viewpoints from the point of view of the design team's view of a large collection of information. Now, in that respect, design, highly complex, highly dynamic process. I, I would contend that the design of a modern large passenger aircraft is just about the most difficult and complicated thing that human beings do, bringing together people from all over the world. The information created by those engineers is stored in a highly distributed uh, way. Engineers' personal information, 
we're doing work on logbooks, for example, how they use them. Local and workgroup stores, shared directories, internets, intranets, document management systems. Increasingly these days, enormous amount of, of information about an engineering project is embedded in the email correspondence of the team. And there can be literally millions of documents created in the life of a course of a large program. And when we speak to engineers, they say they can never find things. Yeah, you know, they, hardly surprising, really. They, they spend 30% of their time looking for information. And even spending 30%, they often fail to find the information they want. They don't know what is available. They, they know what should be available. They don't necessarily know what's there. The cost of obtaining it may be prohibitive, but they're also sifting through enormous amounts of information. We've, we've been doing work uh, in this area in a whole variety of ways. As I say, the engineer's logbook and personal information. There's, within the KIM project, we're looking at the value of information. How do we make a judgment about value to decide what to keep and what not when we're retrieving information to rank what we retrieve? We're looking at novel document forms. I'm just going to pick one example of work in this area that did uh, um, as a joint project between Bristol and Bath some years ago, and which led to a spin-out company whose work I'll show. There are broadly th three ways in which we can organise information. The first is classically you know, what we use for our directories on computers, information prearranged into meaningful categories, um, directory structures, but also things like Google Directory, Yahoo and so on, try to do it that way as well. The difficulty is that it's very difficult to robustly cater for compound subjects that way. Where, how... What directory structure do you use to identify the analysis of a titanium struct for aircraft XX? Do you store under aircraft XX, under titanium, under stress analysis, under the technique you use? A single perspective is imposed. And the principles of division that way will, will be for a particular team, a particular group of people, and only really useful to the creator. And the risk is that you end up um, in... Um, Yes, I know you're all wondering, was that taken in Four East? <laughs> the, um, the principles of division are only useful to the team that, uh, that created it. The second is keyword search. And of course, we use that all the time. We're in the Google world just now. Uh, user enters, center keyword, in their opinion, characterize their information needs. But it needs skill and insight to do it well. Um, there's big differences between novice and, and uh, expert users. If you put, I'm very pleased, if you put design manufacturer research into Google, the first hit is the IDMRC website. I think we should all be very pleased with that. Uh, if you put engineering design and Bath University into Google, you get 12,600 web pages. And the question is, you know, how do you discriminate further from that? Also, it works very well with highly interconnected pages. Work, that works well on the web because of PageRank, that uses the interconnection data, but it's not very good for, un for unconnected connections. And typically, companies have under unconnected connections. Things like Google don't work well in company context. The third thing which you can do is add metadata, data about data, to information objects to make them easier to find. Descriptive labels, and so on. But it depends on conscientious labeling needs skill. Um, uh, I thought, as an example, the, the government is very keen on metadata in public websites. I, so I went to 
www.parliament.uk. Uh, and I just picked the first one I could find. Interestingly, on waste reduction, there's a uh, House of Lords inquiry. This was last week. And if you look at the source of that uh, metadata on the name, content, nothing. Page subject, evidence. Keywords, nothing. Description, nothing. And, and that's not trying to embarrass them or whatever. They, there is a very big problem that whenever things depend on that, how many of you, when you use a Word file, conscientiously fill out all the data when you first open the file? Very few. So we, we took a three-part approach to information retrieval. First of all, using faceted classification, classifying into multiple categories, each representing a different viewpoint on the data, using a novel user interface to provide continuous feedback. And those who created and made that user interface work are in the audience tonight. Very pleased to see you. To automate the process of classification to minimize the effort so that it didn't require people doing it. And also, we combined free text search with classification to allow the... the uh, uh, users to use either approach and in fact to mix the two and couldn't have something in mechanical engineering at Bath without fluid power um, the, this again is the problems with classical enumerative classification on a pump do you classify by pumping principle by material, by delivery pressure by flow rates and so on very difficult to do with faceted classification it's straightforward with faceted we have categories for pressure, pump material, pumping principle, supplier. And we link our documents to whichever of those terms are appropriate. And the no zero match browsing, as we called it, for each selection we make updates the, the uh, categories for selection uh, to reflect uh, the choice we've made. So if we choose air, we select that, and we can prune the hierarchy, take the other pump materials out of the hierarchy, take the pressure, let's say there's no air pump which will achieve greater than 100 bar, and there's no gear pump pumping air, take those out of the selection categories and present the user with a reduced set of categories to select from. And again, the user makes a selection. Again, the categories are pruned. Again, a reduced set is selected and so on. So effectively what we're doing is, is doing a, a Boolean intersection of air and centrifugal and, and then the next pumping principle uh, in returning the documents. And we built all that into a system that allowed us to build classification schemes, build the rules for associating documents with categories in the scheme and a system for collecting documents from all manner of sources. The idea was that you would leave everything where it was in the shared directory, in the PDM system, in the, data, in the text management system and so on, and um, gather documents from all of those systems, automatically classify them against this classification set and then provide a search tool. So really a sort of super search system over all the systems in the company. And we applied that to engineering information systems. The, um, it was applied to one of the um, Ministry of Defence's integrated project teams, knowledge management, oil exploration, manufacturing process selection, currently looking at aircraft service records, but also used in, in non-engineering cases. The uh, Archive Endangered Species website had our um, search and browse system in it. 
corporate social responsibility websites have been built. Healthcare information, we built common information environment for healthcare using that through a company called, called Ajuri. And just some, some slides of the user interface. Here's the classification scheme for 100,000 engineering documents. Uh, keyword search. Oops. Um, again, um, given a keyword search, what are the classification terms which, which remain and so on. And uh, this, this was the user interface of the health demonstrator. And in this case, this, these classification schemes were a thing called SNOMED, a category of about, uh, a classification of about 15,000 medical classifications. And we use an American software tool to automatically classify 30,000 healthcare documents into those um, 12,000 categories and allow it then to be browsed and searched. That's where we've been so far and some examples of the work that we've been doing in this area. And I've presented a vision largely based on incremental advance on current tools, building on top of CAD tools, building search and retrieval systems on top of collections of documents. But I increasingly think we need a much more radical approach to the way that we make our engineering records. Currently, they're largely created in retrospect by people who are busy and want to move on to the next thing in well, they're essentially computer versions of paper documents. And the software tools we use concentrate on presentation, Word, PDF, and so on. It's about presentation, not the underlying data. And there's little or no indication in any of the semantic content. And if you look at our documents, an engineering report is broadly the same as it was 50, maybe even 100 years ago, certainly 50 years ago. And processes, rationale, and information dependencies, which the engineers have used in their work, are all mixed up in the reports, only partially recorded. We've had a revolution in our communications technology with email. We can communicate anything anywhere in the world in seconds. But we haven't had a revolution in our record-making technology. We still broadly use the set of records that we've used for many decades. And they're often only useful to those who create them. And increasingly, I'm hearing from companies, we have at the end of our engineering project a set of drawings and models and an enormous collection of emails. And we don't really know what to do with the latter. As an example, this is a page from an IMECI journal. The, that is not computer interpretable. It's a, it's a bitmap. It, it has no semantic meaning. This... Um, if you were fatigue engineer and wanted to get that data off that graph, you would have to print it out, put a ruler on it, scale it. Other communities like the bioinformatics, chemical informatics community say that that should simply be a representation of underlying data which is available to be searched and browsed. So as I say, that data is not accessible computationally. I believe we need approaches that will allow better results to be made with much less effort. And we're moving such that the future engineering records will be, first of all, much better aligned to task. We will have, for each type of task we undertake, we will have a different record associated with the task, maybe with templates and guide people through. It will all be computer interpretable. The underlying data will be accessible. 
They'll be increasingly recorded in real time. We'll have computer tools that as we work, we will be making records. We'll have active computer assistants helping us. And ultimately, and again, this is part of the Kim project, we're looking at this, the, these records will be capable of being generated automatically or semi-automatically by record-keeping assistants. That's where I'd like to leave you, but I'm not going to have the last word there. Those of you who are engineers know that Dilbert is a, not a cartoon, but a documentary. <laughs> and uh, Dilbert has something to say on this, which I thought I'd share with you. And I'm not going to let Dilbert have the last word. Some words of thanks. First of all, those who are academics who have academic families will know that academics can get a bit obsessive at times. And uh, thank you to my family for putting up with the obsessiveness. Uh, thank you to all my colleagues. I, I, I originally started putting names down. I thought, no, I can't because uh, there are too many people I want to thank, my academic colleagues, but also industrial colleagues at... Uh, Particularly Airbus, Convertine, Rover. I've had uh, very interesting, fruitful working relationships with them for many years. Um, and, but I thought I would list the, the, res the researchers that I've been involved with over the years. It's been a pleasure working with you all. I'm pleased to see so many of you here today. And, of course, thank you to all of you others who have come here, and I hope you've enjoyed the talk. Thank you. The fact is that the last word goes to the Dean of the Faculty of Engineering and Design, Professor Day, who will propose a formal vote of thanks to Professor McMahon. Chris, thank you very much indeed for a marvellous lecture. I'm glad to see the money's not being wasted in the idea of <laughs> thing. I think it was fascinating. To, I mean, I've been involved in CAD systems in a different discipline, and, and to see how many similarities there are, how the promises there some of it's realised, and then you just end up with more information that you don't quite know what to do with at the end of the project. I thought it was also fascinating to see how something that starts off as a kind of engineering challenge ends up proving useful in other domains, as in you showed in, in healthcare and those kind of areas. So I thought a fascinating insight to the, what could have been potentially a dry subject that came across, I think, <laughs> extremely well. So, Chris, thanks very much for an excellent lecture. <laughs>